0: Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to The HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. Today, we're going to boldly go where many don't want to go and we're going to have a candid conversation about palliative care. We're going to importantly discuss what part palliative care plays in care and quite frankly, the life and death continuum, and why the palliative care approach is critically important to the conversation about both leadership and our health workforce as well. While many of us are deeply uncomfortable with any conversation about death, a conversation about palliative care is much more about quality and quality of life. Indeed, as you'll soon learn, the palliative care approach can be applied at any stage of treatment and diagnosis. It is also one of the best examples, when done well, of team-based care, which means there is a lot that other teams can learn from this discipline. All that said, palliative care is, for many, a poorly understood part of the care continuum. And again, as you'll hear from today's guest, palliative care has what he calls a brand problem, which has long kept it in the shadows of conversations. And being poorly understood means we also don't well include it in conversations about healthcare improvements and investments. Hopefully that changes for some of you who listen to this conversation. So for this conversation, I'm joined by Jeff Moat, the CEO of Pallium Canada since twenty seventeen. Jeff has thirty years of experience in creating organizational excellence, compelling social change programs, and increasing consumer engagement within the not for profit, private sector, and NGO industries. Previous to this, Jeff worked at the Mental Health Commission of Canada, where he established Partners for Mental Health, the country's first non-profit organization dedicated to accelerating a social movement to transform the way people think about mental health and act towards people living with a mental health problem or illness. Jeff also enjoyed an eight-year tenure as National Director of Marketing for the Canadian Blood Services. And before all of that, he spent the first half of his career in the financial services as Assistant Vice President for Citibank Canada and One Bank International, and later Vice President of Marketing for Alterna Bank. Jeff is a graduate of McGill University, where he received his Bachelor of Commerce in Marketing and Management Policy. Jeff holds a certificate in Finance and Accounting from McGill University and has earned professional certificates in Direct Marketing and Database Marketing from York University. Jeff also has his Chartered Marketer Professional designation. So hi, Jeff, and welcome to the HQ.
1: Hi, Dale. Great to be with you today.
0: Yes, thank you for joining me today. Um, And see, maybe, Jeff, what we can do about the brand problem that is facing palliative care. Um, So maybe we can start there. Um, Certainly, as we read from your bio, um, given your background in marketing, I believe you're very sincere when you say that Uh, that palliative care does have a brand problem. So perhaps we could start there. Um, What is palliative care from your perspective? um, And when does it actually start in terms of care?
1: Yeah, thanks, Dale. It's it's a very important question. I, I do sincerely believe palliative care does have a brand problem. It's not well understood by most Canadians. It's not well understood by most healthcare professionals. But I agree. Let's start with the definition. So palliative care encompasses... A holistic approach to caring for patients and their families who are confronting life-threatening illnesses. Palliative care isn't just for those who are near death; nor is it reserved for those uh, who are elderly or frail. Anyone who faces a life-threatening illness could benefit from the palliative care approach. The goal of palliative care, uh, Dale, is to improve or or maintain the quality of life and alleviate suffering by promptly identifying and addressing uh, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs, helping people live as best as possible through their illnesses and to die better. It includes uh, reflecting on what their priorities and values are for the for end of life. Um, it's also about supporting families and loved ones as they journey uh, with patients or, or residents in, in the case of long-term care homes. Palliative care, should be initiated early and not only in the last days or weeks of life. It can be provided alongside treatments to control the disease such as chemotherapy or radiotherapy, dialysis um, and treatments to control heart disease and lung disease for example. Mm -hmm. A a crucial aspect of palliative care is its person and family-centered nature. It implies that individuals receiving care you know, along with their their loved ones, are placed at the core of decision making. Mm-hmm. Care should be seamlessly integrated with other treatment strategies and should be made available in diverse settings. You know, we're talking home and community care, hospitals, long term care homes, emergency departments, critical care units, among others, and provided by a wide range of healthcare professionals. And we're talking about you know not just physicians but nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, social workers, paramedics, occupational therapists
0: spiritual counselors, and so on. So, yes. So it, in itself, in terms of what you describe it, it, it encompasses the continuum of care and, and care providers. Um, and I think you certainly, you know, provide a picture that shows that it isn't something that happens, you know, separately, that it happens in, in tandem with other parts of care, how it's administered and provided. Um, so, I mean, what is the struggle, Um with it being understood and known, like, I mean, what's getting in the way? Um, and why aren't we talking about palliative care more earnestly and, and often?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, back in 2014, the world health assembly, uh, which is the decision-making body of the world health organization, it, it called on all member nations to integrate palliative care as a core service in their respective healthcare systems. And this, Resolution, I believe, highlights the need for palliative care across the continuum of care. In other words, early, right, and across different settings of care and the palliative care approach. And it actually stated, and I printed it out here, it said, realizing the urgent need to include palliation across the continuum of care, especially at the primary care level, recognizing that inadequate integration of palliative care into health and social care systems is a major contributing factor to the lack of equitable access to such care. So, so Dale, to, to affect system level change and a culture change, a critical mass of healthcare professionals across the whole healthcare system, as well as the public and health policy makers and the public themselves need to become acquainted with the palliative care approach and be able to apply it. So if you think about this, a patient with heart, lung, or kidney disease, for example, will not benefit from the palliative care uh, approach if, if his or her specialist has not been oriented to the approach. That family physician or home care nurse isn't able to apply the palliative care approach if there exists a discord between what the family physician is saying and what the specialist is advising. Right, training a home care nurse about palliative care is fruitless if the family doc views palliative care as giving up or or only for end of life. So educating. Patients and families about palliative care is pointless if the surgeon and, or the intensivist or the cardiologist have a completely erroneous view of palliative care. So, integration of palliative care across the health system and social and social supports networks, I should say, is, is paramount. And education of the workforce to provide generalist level and specialist level palliative care is a key requirement. There's a notable researcher by the name of, of Kevin Brazil. And he explains that the the integration encompasses the amalgamation of administrative, organizational, clinical, and service components to establish a seamless continuum of care among all parties involved in the the care networks of palliative care patients. The primary objective is to ensure a high quality of life and a well-supported end-of-life journey for both the patient and the family, accomplished through collaborative efforts involving all caregivers, whether they're paid professionals or unpaid individuals. So our approach, uh, Dale at Pallium is aligned with the vision and and recommendations described by by Kevin Brazil. It it aims to, to educate healthcare professionals on palliative care approach across different settings and professions so that all share a common understanding and language related to palliative care and all see opportunities for seamless care across different settings and across the illness trajectory and initiating, of course, palliative care earlier. So it it promotes um, interprofessional learning and collaboration. So again, focusing on only one sector or profession or disease, group at a time, it won't lead to culture change, will it? Or system preparedness and, and system capacity that, that we know is desperately needed now. So our approach has been to build that primary or generalist level capacity, uh, primarily through palliative care education, support materials to healthcare professionals who you know, in, in, in the course of their work are involved in the care of patients with advanced cancer or, or non-cancer diseases. And that's what we call the palliative care approach. So um, by equipping them with these skills, Dale, um, they're able to identify patients much earlier who could benefit from from the palliative care approach it identifies their their physical social psychological and religious spiritual needs and, and begin to address them uh, mm-hmm. and them in a timely and effective advanced care planning and goals of care discussions and it identifies patients with more complex needs who will require the intervention of a specialist palliative care team so we view palliative care as being everyone's business right it translates practices and evidence, and then provides palliative care educators with with tools, and in our case, our elite courseware, and, and things such as the, you know, the palliative pocketbook and, and apps to help them diffuse the palliative care.
0: So, yeah, I think, I mean, an important point, I think, that you make there that, you know, deserves perhaps more emphasis, which is that it, it's not, I mean, the palliative care approach is not a specialty, right, or done by specialists, right? It's done by everyone within Healthcare, um, not and not necessarily to those that have been given a perhaps a, a prognosis of death, um, but and then and then there is the specialty side of things as well. Uh,
1: right. As well, so. both are needed, right? Both yep. are needed. we're not trying to turn primary level or generous level, you know, healthcare professionals into palliative care specialists. Mm-hmm. I mean, care specialists are a critical components of deliver of proper palliative care, right? Um, but the reality is everyone has a role. So
0: one of the other things that you mentioned, I just maybe come back to, and I know we may not want to turn this into a history lesson, but you, but ten years ago when the WHO sort of made that sort of proclamation is not long really in time. Do you have any insight in terms of what you know? What was the critical thing that sort of triggered that sort of to happen? Like what? Why did the conversation shift, or why why that conversation at that point in time?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you know all countries are coming to the reality of the fact that uh we're all facing an aging demographic mm-hmm. right uh people are living longer uh they're living with a number of comorbidities right so it's push it, it's putting far more pressure on all healthcare systems around the world and the reality is that we're not equipped to deal with this tsunami and i think i think covid has just given us a you know, a glimpse into what can happen when we're not prepared. So I think the World Health Organization, rightly so, back in 2014, went on record to say this is something that we all need to begin addressing. Every single country has, has more to do on this front. And, and certainly Canada has, has, uh, has a lot of work to do.
0: So, yeah, I, I mean, that's, you know, about six years before our pandemic sort of begins, Um, you know, how did things change as a result of that? I mean, has has the the last three and a half years altered the way we look at palliative care and, and approaching all of this?
1: You well, know, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, a few days before the World Health Organization declared the the novel coronavirus outbreak a pandemic, um, the critical importance of palliative care training was actually discussed by the House of Commons. Health Committee and a presentation was given by Kai High uh, that highlighted that three in five doctors do not feel ready to provide palliative care, despite 80% of them seeing patients who need it. And by not activating a palliative care approach themselves, many patients suffer needlessly through their illness, which at some times Dale can be many months or even years. It also leads or Healthcare decisions and inappropriate and expensive use of healthcare resources. And this includes, you know, um, very higher rates of hospitalizations, you know, emergency departments, hospital deaths, which is a major drain on healthcare budgets. A, a recent national review by KPMJ of, of palliative care in Australia actually concluded um, by saying that um, palliative care should be a major health system investment the benefit it has not only on patients facing serious illness, but as well as the economy. So when the pandemic hit, palliative care became a critical issue for patients and families. And, and a hurried effort ensued, right, to to increase uh, palliative care capacity and for healthcare providers to acquire uh basic fundamental competencies during the pandemic for clinicians you know who aren't familiar with this area but might be called upon to provide palliation. So the sudden demand created you know a professional and healthcare crisis underscoring the necessity to swis- swiftly develop um and, and distribute resources to assist them uh, during the pandemic so you know at, amidst the the emergence of covid you know there was a rapid transformation as we know in the protocols for administering uh palliative and life care within the healthcare system And um, the implementation, of course, of social isolation measures and and limitations on visits and residences and hospitals and hospices and long-term care residents, you know, led, as we know, to patients, uh, residents and families being separated and and grieving alone. And Mm -hmm. frontline healthcare professionals, assuming the role of primary and actually, Dale, in some cases, sole providers of palliative care support for patients, unfortunately, During this critical period where proficient palliative care abilities were crucial, a significant number of carers uh, lacked the necessary knowledge and and attitudes and skills to fulfill the task, right? So so it really did put a strain on on resources. It it exposed gaps and, um, and systemic vulnerabilities in palliative care delivery and supportive care more broadly across all settings in in this country right both in hospitals not just long-term care hospitals as well as in home and community care settings. So um, you know as a response um, in the face of these challenges and uncertainties one of the things that that we did at Pallium is we led a number of initiatives and and thanks to funding support received from the Canadian Medical Association Health Canada and these were initiatives really aimed Dale at at, at enhancing training of frontline health. In, in essential palliative care skills. So um, there was a number of we 25 webinars that we created um, you know, it resulted in some 14,000 healthcare professionals registering, 6,500 attending, and, and some 978 urban rural, and remote you know, communities across Canada were represented and some 30,000 views. So there was an appetite for this. Mm-hmm. And what fell out of that? You know, As a result of that and, and the uptake and the need for it, Um, Health Canada ended up funding what we call the Palliative Care Equal Project, right, which is a a five-year national initiative that cultivates um, communities' practice, right, and and supports continuing professional development among healthcare professionals who care for patients Mm with with life-threatening illness, and it creates these virtual communities of learners by bringing together local healthcare providers and community leaders and with regional, provincial, territorial and national subject matter experts, right? To support continuous learning. So there's definitely been some positive outcomes for palliative care stemming from the pandemic. COVID has certainly shown the spotlight on the need for better palliative care. And frankly, as a sector, we cannot lose this opportunity to push for for even broader change and greater funding.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's the certainly one of the overused adages about crisis about right these, these opportunities that come but hopefully you know it it does shine the light on on a, on a gap and an opportunity um, for change um, and I, you know, I, and I do commend you and, and Pallium for the work that, you know, with the ECHO project, I think it's, it's really amazing and, and, and well named in terms of, you know, an opportunity for, you know, amplifying, you know, and spreading knowledge throughout the system. So hopefully maybe you can provide us with a link to that, that we can include in our show notes hereafter for people who want to learn more. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it, it may, you know. Beg the question, I guess, a little bit in terms of, you know, um, you know, what is why people can't access palliative care if, if it's something that's so, you know, obvious and, and has so many benefits, um, you know, which is, you know, why aren't we making the investments that we're supposed to be, if that's the answer. But but, you know, otherwise, what is getting in the way of of access?
1: I I know we only have a certain amount of time to talk about it, but I'm succinct here. Um, And and I'd be remiss if I didn't start by recognizing that, listen, there has been some great progress in the last, you know, say 20 years in terms of highlighting, you know, uh, and heightening awareness of of palliative care and and developing palliative care services. But the reality is, Dale, that Canada remains a patchwork with many gaps across the country uh, in different jurisdictions, right? Some jurisdictions have one type of palliative care service or services, but but not other essential ones. So obstacles you know, may arise for individuals across the country when it comes to access and palliative care, regardless of whether they reside uh, in densely populated uh, urban areas or, or remote rural regions. Um, and these challenges encompass various factors, including um, limitations in healthcare system capacity, um, insufficient awareness among healthcare professionals and the general public regarding that benefits of palliative care, um, geographic and demographic disparities in care provision. So by adopting a, a holistic, you know, region specific and culturally sensitive approach to palliative care, some of these obstacles can be overcome and thus ultimately enhancing accessibility. There are a number of Canadian jurisdictions, um, a number of them prioritize community palliative care only a small percentage of Canadians actually receive formal palliative care outside of hospitals and residential hospices. And, and Kai Hai highlighted this, that while Canadians are, are living longer, their overall quality of life does not always improve. And it's mm-hmm. life expectancy often brings with it, right? Challenges of, of coping with poor health resulting from chronic illnesses, degenerative diseases or, or cancer. So, in addition to these factors, um, Canadians encounter other barriers when they are seeking palliative care, you know, including um, difficulties uh, accessing, you know, essential medications when they're needed. Uh, So ensuring proper funding and establishing support systems to facilitate timely access and administration of medications are are crucial aspects of of overcoming this this challenge. In addition, transitioning between provinces and territories can lead to interruptions and coverages and and, and posing even further obstacles. Finally, you know, the significance of culturally safe palliative care continues to grow, right, as we as we continue to, to strive to honor the cultural diversity of mm-hmm. uh, existing in new Canadians. And, and, I, and I just want to finish by saying that the other part, the other barrier, Dale, is that palliative care has received inadequate attention in most medical and nursing school curricula as well as college and university curricula for other healthcare professions. And while there were some important gains in a few medical schools as a result of projects such as the, what um, we call FPEC, which is Educating Future Physicians on Palliative and End of Life Care. Uh, that was a, compet- based, a competency-based model of medical education that was being integrated across the, the trajectory of medical education in Canada. It wasn't funded long enough Right, to, to, enough, to ensure enough spread and scale in, in all the medical schools across the country and become you know, truly entrenched. So some of the schools saw gains, um, but now they're experiencing cuts to the palliative care curriculum. So even at the postgraduate level, right, many residency programs in specialty areas such as internal medicine, uh, cardiology, respirology, nephrology, critical care, they don't include palliative care training, even though they're going to be caring for patients with serious mm-hmm. illnesses, right? A recent study showed that only about 20 to 30% of internal medicine residents and only about 60% of family medicine residents are graduating with core palliative care skills. So they're not able to effectively activate a palliative care approach when they enter practice, right? So I could go on, but there, th- those are a few of the barriers that, that flip to the top when you ask me that question. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, and
0: I'm sure we like you say, we could spend much more time on that. But I mean, I'm sure frustrating for those, um, you know, who have dedicated their lives to palliative care to sort of trying to be, I guess, at some level, um, correct um, an absence of um, of skills within the healthcare system amongst health professionals only to see that we're continuing to graduate more that are still in the same boat. Um, so (laughs) yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you've touched on a lot of things that, I mean, I I appreciate you're talking about them in in the context uh, specific to palliative care, but taken out of that context would be some of the same concepts that we would be talking about, about, um, our healthcare system, culture, people, more broadly speaking, um, you talk about, um, you know, cultural safety as an example of that. So, um, you know, one of the other outcomes, I guess, of the pandemic has been, of course, our focus on our health workforce um, and our current crisis that we're in. Um, So I'm wondering what you see as the connection between palliative care and discussions of our workforce
1: more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I certainly do see a connection between um, palliative care and, and our HHR crisis. In fact, um, palliative care has experienced its own unique HHR challenges that I think provide some valuable lessons to inform plans to address um, this broader crisis. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, it's it's important to understand that there are, there are two levels of palliative care provision, right? There's primary or generalist level that's provided by Healthcare professionals who are not palliative care specialists but with core palliative care competencies and are able to address the palliative care needs of many patients. And there's specialist level palliative care, which is provided by healthcare professionals with advanced palliative care training expertise. Mm-hmm. At specialist palliative care level, there is a shortage of palliative care physicians with advanced palliative care training in this country. And there was a study done by um by Barbara uh, Barbera, Klinger, and Pereira that identified. 276 palliative care physicians in Ontario, and emerging standards call for at least double that number, right, and it depends on the model you look at, but at least double that. So it's important to recognize the importance of both specialist level and primary level palliative care delivery and services. The two actually complement each other, and and there should be close collaboration between specialist palliative care services and all other healthcare professionals and services. Um, there should be adequately resourced specialist palliative care services like the hospital or community consultation teams, palliative care units and hospices. But with this drastic shortage of specialist fail, a system that relies primarily on specialist palliative care teams providing all palliative care, including primary level care is unsustainable and ultimately reduces system capacity and access, particularly if we are to initiate Right, palliative care, as we say earlier and across all diagnoses. So, you know, and this is described again by the World Health Assembly and the World Health Organization, the need for core palliative care competence across all fields, primary care and specialty uh, areas um, will allow these professionals to initiate palliative care early. And there's many studies have identified the care of seriously ill persons and persons with the end of life as a challenging area of practice, right? Imagine being sent, imagine being sent to work in an intensive care unit without the required skills. Imagine being asked to do something that is challenging without any training, right? You, you would feel, of course, anxious and, and stressed and probably by the end of the day exhausted. So it's a cause of significant distress for healthcare professionals who are often confronted with these situations on a daily basis, especially in some hospital community, you know, emergency critical care and long-term care services. We heard during the pandemic how healthcare professionals and other care providers and whole services struggled, you know, to care for persons who were dying. It contributed to the burnout, right? Training makes a difference. We have heard many times both anecdotally and during our studies exploring the impact of our our training courses, lead courses, professionals saying that they feel training in this area makes them more confident and makes them, you know, enjoy providing this care more. It, it actually, many feel it, it, it's very satisfying work once they're trained in it, and some even describe the experience of joy in providing palliative care. And this mm-hmm. last point, right, speaks to the fourth aim, the quadruple aim in in quality improvement, which is about improving the experience of care providers. Yeah,
0: I I I I fully agree. And, and we're going to do a few episodes um on the podcast in the in the future on compassion, compassion fatigue, and the importance of all of that. So um and i so I, I mean i do think that you're you're talking about something that is critically important um you know and we we certainly have been talking about um you know that compassion fatigue you know and moral distress that we certainly see within our workforce um and then yet you know others would say that it's not a, a lack of compassion it's not fi- compassion itself isn't fatigued it's our it's our capabilities to right. or ca- capacity to deliver it um and people um and the the moral distress about not being able to do things that you would want to do or think you can do um so um yeah so it's certainly a big hairy problem um and and i think as you're describing you know we're creating uh an exponentially creating i guess a, a bottleneck of demand by not having the right resources throughout the system
1: well that's right and and you know as, as my key message has been um, as part of our discussion has been it, it's it's about building capacity with the resources we already have, right that, mm-hmm. that has a role to play. And I think that that's absolutely correct.
0: So I mean one of the other areas that continues to come out of our conversations around um, health reform and, and reform of our health workforce or transformation, um, is the question of scope of practice. Um, you know, what is your perspective on this? Um, and maybe if, if you know, if you see that as part of the solution, maybe you can give some examples on what that might look like.
1: I'd love to, yeah. So, you know, for starters, and, and what you've gathered from what I've shared uh, up to this point, right? Uh, palliative care is a team sport, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's to be viewed as everyone's business. Uh, it's teamwork. It's leverage everyone er, leveraging everyone's skills and. And scopes of practice everyone has a role to play of course but i want to point to uh, to an example of three family health teams in ontario um one was in Petawawa, uh one was at the briere family health team here in ottawa and the jane finch health team in toronto mm-hmm. these family health teams identified a need to provide comprehensive care to the patients and communities under their care um, providing palliative care needed to be an inherent part of their plans so, they actually had all team members from physicians and nurses to social workers and pharmacists and even the administrative staff, They undertake um, lead training. And, and they are now providing excellent primary level palliative care to their patients and communities. And they have access to specialist palliative care teams for the more complex cases, right? And, and for their quality improvement work. And, and similarly, uh, Several years ago, uh, the Ontario Renal Network, which, of course, is the organization Ontario that oversees um, the care of patients with kidney disease, uh, realized that their teams, their entire teams, needed core pod care skills. So, again, they partnered with us to make uh, Leap Renal uh, available uh, to all their team members.
0: So, I mean, that's... I think very inspiring, and I think you're also, you know, maybe in terms of the the examples that you give about this actually happening, I guess, in family health as yes. opposed to, um, you know, specialties in our in our hospitals or even in in hospice, right? So, I think that that perhaps speaks to some of the where the opportunities may be. I mean, does that is there a reason, I guess, that you found those examples in particular? Yeah, these were
1: these were groups that had self identified. Um, yeah. It came to us with, with specific needs. So, uh, but the reality is that um, when we talk about a systems approach, you know, we can give you just as many examples in, in you know, uh, community care settings and hospital settings, um, and uh, even among paramedic teams, which is a very interesting innovation that I'd love to speak to you about. Sure. Um, well, if you'd like
0: to share, go for it. So.
1: Well, all right. Um, so this this is really a, a, an interesting example because uh, it's an innovative uh, paramedic palliative care program that actually began in 2014. It was led by the provinces of of Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island uh, and ourselves at Pallium. And the goal of the program, uh, Dale, uh, was to enhance the care provided by paramedics. For patients receiving palliative care at home, who we were, and, and they were often right, the first responders in these situations. And we we identified together five what we call our desired outcomes, right? So the, the first one was ultimately, of course, enhanced care provided by paramedics for patients receiving palliative care at the home. Um, secondly, it was to improve access to palliative care supports at home, regardless of location and time of day, um, enhanced palliative end-life experience for patients and their families. Um, reduced emergency department transfers, and improved paramedic competencies and confidence in provision of palliative care. So here was the situation at the time. Both provinces were experiencing very high rates of transfer from home to emergency departments when paramedics were called to the homes of patients with palliative care needs. So this was identified as an area for improvement. Mm -hmm. And the paramedics had reported a lack of expertise and comfort in providing the palliative care approach, uh, which was another opportunity for improvement. So all paramedics, 100% uh, in in both provinces were trained over a period of nine months. That's about 1100 paramedics leveraging Pallium's lead paramedic course. And lead paramedic sessions were facilitated by local palliative care teams, along with palliative care trained paramedics And these these facilitator teams all received our early facilitator training. And it's interesting. It was a multi-pronged evaluation of the program that was undertaken. Um, Surveys and interviews with patients, families, paramedics, and leads, and a return on investment analysis showed the following. 47% of EMS responses to patients with palliative goals of care result in the patient being able to remain at home, where we know they want to be. Significantly more patients were treated at home versus being transported to the hospital. So, in Nova Scotia, transports to hospital decreased from 59.2% to 47.6%. In PEI, which previously had a policy to transfer all patients to hospitals, paramedics treated 32% of patients requiring palliative care at home. So, the estimated return on investment for in the program was $2.5 million, and that includes Um, The value of avoided emergency department visits, um, value of avoided hospital admission, uh, and the value of about 114 returned unit hours to the system. So there was slightly longer time on scene, but the overall time on task for EMS staff was lower compared to EMS events where transport occurred. So, and I think an important lesson, Dale, from this project is the impact that investing in scaling and spreading of an innovation can make. And, and, and I'd like to commend, you know, CPAC, Community Partnership Against Cancer, in funding the continued rollout of the paramedic providing palliative care home program. So instead of reinventing the wheel, right, and, you know, funding can go into spreading these proven initiatives um, into many other jurisdictions. Uh, and when this happens, you know, what happens, Dale, is that you start to hit a tipping point, right, where, you know, where it takes hold and it, it starts to spread exponentially. It's just a, a normal part of the system. You know, this type of investment in scaling, scaling and spreading on a much broader scale, I think, is is needed beyond what CPAC is able to fund, um, so that other settings of care can benefit. I'm talking centenial, long-term care, hospitals, and home community.
0: Yeah, well, an impact culture, I think, is what you're describing ultimately. Which, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, the pandemic certainly has us on the brink of a, um, you know a host of changes, um, and improvements and, you know, to our health system standards, regulatory, uh, legislative changes, um, and not to make this Ontario specific, but I certainly, you know, that we both live here, um, uh, you know, they're making changes to the long-term care legislation that will obviously, um, highlight palliative care even more than it did before. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to put you on the hot seat of being a political commentator here um, and uh, put you in the crosshairs of anyone or any government, but, you know, in your perspective, I mean, do these changes, do they address the issues that you've raised at the outset? I mean, is this getting us to the right place? And if not, what more
1: needs to be done? Yeah, no, it's, it's a, that's a fair question. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna actually start at the federal level, Dale. Um, mm-hmm i think it's an important starting point because that's at the, at the pt level so as you may recall back in 2017 uh, federal legislation set into motion right the development of a, a national palliative care framework so bill c277 called for better access to palliative care um in community and home settings including hospitals long-term care facilities and residential hospices. It also called on federal government to work with the provinces and territories, as well as palliative care experts, to develop a structure that will guide and support the implementation of high quality palliative care services. So in response to that legislation, and after extensive consultation with provinces and territories and, and experts and stakeholders, including people with lived experience, uh, right across the country. Health Canada developed, as we know, the Framework on Palliative Care, which was launched in 2018, and the corresponding Action Plan on Palliative Care, which was released a year later. And while, you know, certainly I acknowledge and express gratitude for the efforts and investments made by the federal government thus far, it is evidence that the govern- government has not fully fulfilled the commitments outlined in the Framework and Action Plan. And, and frankly urgent action is necessary to, to effectively uh, realize and pursue the objectives you know established in the framework and the action plan, and to respond, as I mentioned earlier, to the evolving demographics and other factors that you know demand increased availability and accessibility of public care services for individuals across the country. At the upcoming five-year milestone in December of this year, it is the responsibility of the federal government to provide a comprehensive update on advances made in implementing both the framework and the action plan of palliative care. So we strongly urge the government to take immediate and decisive measures to to guarantee that every individual in Canada has equitable access to affordable, um, culturally sensitive, and exceptional palliative care services that frankly they rightly deserve. Now, in the bilateral health funding agreements between Feds and the PTs, it's crucial to give paramount importance to enhancements and heighten investments in palliative care. And this can be accomplished by establishing dedicated funding for palliative care and implementing provisions that mandate public reporting on the outcomes resulting from, from this financial support. Let's switch gears now to Ontario. So in Ontario, to your original question, of the past few years, the government has certainly taken steps to address the barriers to improve access to palliative care in the province, right? And you may recall MPP Sam Usterhoff's Bill, the Compassionate Care Act, led to the development of a provincial palliative care framework. And the framework, right, clearly identified the need to explore best practice models, you know, for example, integrating palliative care training and education for multidisciplinary teams. We're also encouraged to see the passage of the fixing, the Long-Term Care Act, which mandated long-term care homes to ensure that residents receive care and services that integrate what they call a Palliative care philosophy, we call it a palliative care approach, but a palliative care philosophy. So it ensures legislation, right, a commitment that integration of palliative care uh, be guaranteed to residents of Ontario's long-term care homes and other provinces are likely to take similar action in my, my opinion. But what I'd like to see, again, kind of what to what we talked about earlier, Dale, is, is a commitment to scale and spread trusted evidence-based solutions to ensure that all healthcare professionals, including leadership, working in long-term care residents have the skills and knowledge to provide exceptional palliative care. You know, it's not enough just to build the homes or hospices, if the people working in these care facilities don't have the required skills, knowledge, and comfort level, then then it's only half the equation, isn't it?
0: Well, and I think a lot of what you've described, I mean, I mean, the, the common points or or issues that we see in so many of our conversations about healthcare, I guess more broadly speaking, I'm, I mean, you're talking about issues about access, right? You're talking about quality, you're talking about um, you know affordability um, and sustainability. You're right. Um, so um, yeah, I, I just I, I think that so many of the the points that you've raised over the course of our conversation are things that we hear in so many other aspects but this one particular topic or part of our care continuum right c- continues to sort of get short shrift i guess in terms well, of that
1: yeah dale and i think it goes back to your original question off the top which is palliative care has a brand issue right mm-hmm. you know it's not well understood it's underfunded in fact i liken palliative care to where mental health and mental illness was 15, 20 years ago. Now, look how far that movement has come over the past decade and a half, you know, two decades, and certainly more needs to be done. But, you know, there's a few pages or a few chapters out of, you know, that book that palliative care could be, you know, leveraging um, as it moves its mission forward to ultimately provide better, earlier care to more Canadians.
0: Is it a stigma thing? I mean, I, I mean, I I don't know if you could, if that's you know I I know we're trying to blend metaphors a little bit, but I mean, is it partly the same thing that mental health has faced over the years in terms of us not being able to talk about it because we were just it was stigmatized in terms of our brains? Good question. Uh,
1: you know, I th- I think that's part of it. You know, let's face it you know, loss and mortality are inherent aspects of the human experience, right? Mm-hmm. But our current obsession with finding cures and our fear of dying create obstacles, right, to providing, you know, comprehensive person-centered palliative care. And, and these barriers often result in, you know, the inefficient utilization of resources, right? So it's an, it's really essential, Dale, to, to normalize discussions around living with illness and the dying process and, and, and death and bereavement, right? Society equates palliative care with end-of-life care, right? The last weeks of life and or the terminal phase, as we call it. Death is not a failure of medicine. It's an inevitable part of life. And to not fully, I forget where I took that from. That—that's I, I borrowed that line from someone. But, you know, to not fully apply our capacity to reduce suffering is, however, a catastrophic, catastrophic failure of medicine, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I think, I I think you're right. I mean, we're focused on, on extending life, right. Um, without really acknowledging that life has an end, right. So let's make, you know, that whole quality of that that process when we were born to die, right, as, as easy as it, as it possibly can whilst maximizing the, you know, the life experience we have too, the joy and all of that. So it doesn't have to be either, or, um, You know, so, I mean, I, I know we've talked on, on several of these kinds of things, um, you know, over the course of this conversation, but you know, when we talk about so many kinds of large manifest changes within the health system, um, that we're looking for, you know, we're talking about changes in culture and mindset, almost all of them come back to the question of leadership or the role of leadership in playing in that. So from your perspective. Um, you know, where do, where does leadership and our, and leaders fit into this? And, and, and even from a learning perspective, given that we both have some, some skin in that game, you know, where does that fit? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen,
1: the the role of leaders in driving systems and culture change, of course, is of paramount importance. And I like to give examples of of what I mean by this. So, um, as part of our, our research and our quality improvement work, one of the things that we undertake. Um, our pre and post surveys, you know, with our learners, right? Uh, We also capture from each learner three to five commitments that they plan put into practice and what they've learned from our lead courses. You know, we call these commitment to change. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who aren't familiar with commitment to change, it's an approach to to reinforce learning and encourage participation, you know, uh, and application to practice. So as I said, immediately post-course, Learners commit to making changes in their practice as a result of participating in the course. So these are the statements. And then several weeks or months later, our system automatically reaches out to them and prompts them to reflect on their commitments, right? Or what we call reflections. And there's been several studies, you know, including many randomized trials that show that clinicians who express a commitment uh, to change uh, post-intervention, and those who reflect on them at a later time are more likely to change their behavior in practice. Mm-hmm. And increase the likelihood of follow-through. So, where am I going with this? We analyzed the four-month post-course commitments change reflections submitted by our learners. The most common implemented commitments relate to initiating palliative care, you know, early, which is great across disease, you know, pain and symptom management, use of clinical instruments, advanced care planning, interprofessional collaboration. But the barriers were interesting, the barriers to implementation into practice include lack of time, no surprise, system level factors, such as lack of support by their leaders, Mm -hmm. untrained colleagues. So lack of support by their leaders were standing in the way of then implementing what they had learned. So leaders play a critical role in setting the direction, the vision, and values of an organization, right? They have the ability to influence and and shape the behaviors and attitudes and, and norms within the system that they're responsible for. So they serve as the role models, don't they, for others? They bring people together around a common vision and they encourage alignment they're, they're accountable for driving change, right? So if our leaders aren't fully committed and supportive of the content and principles we're teaching, right? Genuine and enduring transformation will not materialize. So we, we realized that we needed to develop You know, a course that offers healthcare leaders, regardless of their level of leadership, a comprehensive range of knowledge, insights, and resources to enhance the palliative care aspects within their organizations. And so this course, Leap Leaders, was born, and it aims to foster a better understanding of palliative care and its impacts on patients and healthcare services, right? It covers essential components required for effective palliative care service planning, Data, evidence to support this, you know, it's going to assist leaders in evaluating their existing services and guide them in developing business plans and initiatives that promote the seamless integration or endorsement of palliative care for the patients with serious illness. And this was launched about a year ago. So we're, we're very anxious to measure the results and impact. So hopefully, we can circle back at a future point and I'll share with you. How yeah, so
0: that would be very interesting. But I mean, <clears throat> I mean, what you're, you, you know, to sum that up, I mean, that it, I mean, leaders have a great capacity or to be enablers for system change and adoption. Failure to be enablers, they will be obstacles. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So, so they invest all this, this time, energy and resources and building capacity among their staff. And, and in many cases, they're the barrier uh, that stands between them and, and implementing what they've learned to ultimately provide better verification. So. Yeah. Well this is I mean, why the systems approach is so important. It can't can't just be about the healthcare professionals or the community. It has to be the leadership, right? And and the public health policy makers and the health policy makers. So it yeah, truly to, the systems approach. Yeah. Provide them the resources, make sure that
0: other things that are in the way are removed and uh, to make it a priority. Um so it's been a, a uh, you know, a wonderful conversation, Jeff, I've really I've enjoyed this. Um, and I'm sure we could talk uh, about this in so many other aspects. Um, but um, in the interest of time, I mean, last words to you in terms of anything else that you'd like to share that hasn't been covered. And, and maybe I will also ask you just um, as, a, as another thought. I mean, I know healthcare loves acronyms, and you've used the word LEAP throughout. Um, maybe just for our learners, um, or, or listeners here, sorry, um, define what that is and maybe where they can learn
1: more about that too.
0: Yeah, sure. So well, I'll start with that. I'll start with your your
1: second question first. So LEAP is an acronym. Uh, it actually works in both French and English. So LEAP stands for uh, Learning Essential Approaches to Palliative Care, or in French, Les Essences la So that's, that's why we call it LEAP. and. Uh, Last words, um, yeah. So, listen. I think we've reached you know a crucial juncture, right? That demands uh, a comprehensive, a system wide solution, and to our last point, resolute leadership that goes beyond. It goes beyond the. L- incremental measures and minor adjustments instead of focusing on genuine transformative change, right? And, and drawing lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic, which is still very fresh in everyone's mind, it's imperative that we acknowledge the deficiency in core palliative care competencies among many healthcare and human resource providers, right? And I think, you know, we have to honor the memory of those who received inadequate palliative care and passed away by by committing the necessary resources to establish um, widespread and purposeful implementation of consistent education standards and training. This step, I think, is vital to ensure that basic palliative care is consistently delivered and to prevent such lapses in the future.
0: Yeah, so truly, I mean, the quality of health care and quality of life depends on it so well uh, again thank you very much jeff for taking the time to have this conversation with me today and uh, yes i wish you best of well um, and uh, look forward to future conversations on this and and the research and findings that you continue to get
1: yeah thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today i really appreciate it
0: okay take care You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherback, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.